0: This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. This is Audrey Tan.
1: And this is David Fogarty.
0: And our guest today is Associate Professor Winston Chow, a climate scientist at the Singapore Management University and a lead author for an upcoming report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Welcome to the show.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: So today we will be discussing a literally hot topic on the heat problems plaguing the world. And first up would be an issue that has dominated the headlines recently, the Australian bushfires. So David, you are the climate change editor at The Straits Times and you have reported quite extensively on this issue. Could you bring us up to speed?
1: Thanks, Audie. Yes, and this issue is kind of close to my heart, being an Australian and also growing up in Canberra, which is very close to the south coast of New South Wales, where some of the worst fires have been. So literally areas that I've known since childhood have gone up in smoke and towns badly affected. So you know, I kind of feel this a little bit personally, but also just the scale of the bushfire crisis this year is historically, and not just in my lifetime, unprecedented in size it's eleven thousand sorry 11 million hectares which is about 150 times the size of singapore or about four times the size of belgium it's a huge area that's gone up and spoke and fires are still burning thankfully not as intensively because the weather conditions have calmed down a bit but you know we've got another two and a half months of the fire season left so who knows what will happen but the fire started basically in september which is very early uh, and fire season doesn't normally start uh, until about november in australia i think And they've affected most parts of South and certainly Eastern Australia. Most states and territories have have had severe fires. So that's also kind of unprecedented, because usually in the past we've had very bad fires in one or two places. They've flared up for a short period of time, unfortunately killed a lot of people because they've caught people out, but nothing of this scale. So nothing that we've had also in terms of large-scale peacetime evacuations right during the Christmas and New Year sort of holiday season where hundreds of thousands of people sort of go to coastal areas or for their summer holidays. So psychologically or socially, it's had a real impact on people. It's really led them to think about not only the impacts of climate change, but then really what the future of Australia is going to look like.
0: So Australia has a very arid climate, right, David? And so bushfires, they are quite common. So what made this year particularly bad?
1: So it was, no pun intended, but it's kind of like a perfect storm of events. So we had a natural phenomenon called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which I think hit a record level in November. And this phenomenon basically leads to it's a temperature difference in the Indian Ocean. And you get warmer ocean temperatures off Africa and cooler temperatures off Northwest Australia. And this leads to a decrease historically in rainfall, particularly over Southeast Australia. So we had a record Indian Ocean dipole. Plus, you know, that exacerbated a long running drought We've had year after year of record-breaking heat, summer heat, and in fact, not just even in, in summer and in, in other seasons as well. So we've got basically very low, to record low, rainfall in parts. So you already have a drying continent. You already have forests that are naturally susceptible to fire anyway, because fire is part of the, the natural landscape. So all it needed was literally a spark, and that's what we got you ended up with conditions that were basically of of the type that we've never really seen before, or at least not of that scale or ferocity. It had been forecast, it had been warned, but I think political leaders just weren't really paying attention or just didn't believe the warnings.
0: So like the fires in Australia, they have really recently captured the world's attention and you see headlines about them every other day. But Australia wasn't the only continent on fire in recent years. We've also seen fires nearby in Indonesia, in the Amazon rainforest, in California, and even Arctic tundra was also aflame. So Winston, maybe you can tell us a bit more about whether all these fires, do they have anything in common?
2: Yes, they have something in common in the sense that they are exacerbated by climate change. David has pointed out the right things. You've got increased warmth, you've got record drought conditions, local drought conditions or regional drought conditions in those places what it does is that it's expanded the area in which the fuel source for these fires your natural vegetation that will be like gasoline, using an analogue, like gasoline in a closed room you're just uh, waiting for that right spark to happen it could be a lightning strike it could be some other natural factor that causes the flame to start and then it just spreads literally like wildfire and that's the situation right now in Australia and that was the cause of other sorts of wildfires that you mentioned Audrey, just as we recently as twelve months ago.
0: So basically climate change is not the one lighting the fire, but it's providing a lot more fuel.
2: No it is not. It's the factor that makes things worse. Okay. And if I could just add on to the 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 sad thing about what David pointed out is that these conditions were predicted a long time ago, a decade ago, two decades ago by Australian scientists who did warn of the increased risks. That will happen if under a warming world. Funding was cut for Australian scientists in recent years. It's become highly political. And now I'm afraid the chickens have come home to roost in this sense. It's got a lot of attention, but it's also incredibly sad from a scientific political standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really very unfortunate and very sad that this is the case.
0: So you know, Vincent, you just mentioned that I mean the science has predicted the possibility of such events long yes. time ago. With the knowledge that we have now, plus the experience that we've had experiencing these fires, what do you think this means for future bushfire seasons?
2: It means a few things. Scientifically, it matches like what the previous assessments from the IPCC have said. The fifth assessment report pointed out that for Australia, Asia, for the part of the world that David's from, the risk of wildfires will increase. Fire seasons will start earlier. Fire seasons will be prolonged because of conditions of increased temperature and especially of drought. It pointed out the region which is most vulnerable to fires in Southeast Australia. Then this was also uh, repeated in the current assessment cycle for AR6 uh, with all the special reports, the special report for 1.5 degrees sea warming, special report for land and special report for oceans and uh, changing climate. They all point out that the risk will be there. So the future doesn't look very pleasant in this case.
0: I think if anything, what the recent fires have taught us is that you know environmental issues are not just about the environment. Sometimes it's also related to how people live and work and play. Right, David, any other thoughts on this issue?
1: Well, definitely these fires are going to change the way Australia behaves, the way they think. I think it's going to change the way or where people build their homes and how they build them. So that's an adaptation aspect. Does it make sense to build flammable houses in the middle of a flammable forest with escalating risks? Personally, no. But I think insurance rates, when they go up, will pro- probably drive behavioural change anyway. And in some cases, ins- some insurers will say no. That's uh, that's the hope. Indeed, that's we, the
2: case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the concern, however, from a response, a societal response issue, and also a political response issue. Scientists, if you ask them, you know, privately, we've all been saying that what would require societal change for firm climate action to take place would be extreme weather events that result in catastrophic consequences like what we're seeing now in Australia. What we are paying attention to specifically is what will the Australian government do in response to these sort of fires? Will this sort of catastrophe, which not only will result in massive economic costs, which I think we'll talk about later, whether or not it's not just a question of enhanced adaptation and resilience, but whether the current government will actually realise that it is to their best interest to enhance their mitigation response as well.
1: Judging from this current government, I have my serious doubts. If this crisis doesn't lead the Australian government to change and adopt more rigorous climate policies, or certainly stronger targets for 2030, I'm not sure what else will. Perhaps a major flooding event was probably next on the list for Australia, which usually happens. But I think it's also the the change in the way people will react to this. And will summer holidays ever be the same again? Uh, Will people judge that going to the coast or some coastal places are just too dangerous right at the height of summer?
2: And the signs are not good. These events are already happening in a world that is just over one degree C above pre-industrial. We are on track to exceed 1.5. We are on track to exceed 2 degrees. Current projections, if nothing changes, and with the latest climate models that can project temperatures up to the end of this century, we're on course for a plus 3 degrees C world. Looking at the assessment so far of the risks from wildfires and the IPCC, there's this thing, what we call a burning embers diagram. Imagine a thermometer, and on the vertical axis is temperatures, and beyond a certain temperature, it goes from orange to yellow to red to magenta and whatever darker colors, the risk for wildfires, not linear, they are exponential. And evidence from projections of that are not very pretty for places like Australia or other places like California that are prone to Mm. wildfires. So portents are definitely
1: not good. And also the impacts on on nature, on forests, on on the species composition, you know, the the iconic animals that we're so used to seeing or associating with Australia and the the richness of the forests, you know, repeated intense burning episodes Mm. could basically lead to a tipping point or a dramatic shift.
2: Exactly, non-linear. The other issue is that estimates of about one billion animals have lost their lives. Honestly, um, I think that's an underestimate. If you include other sorts of animals, it's probably more than that. So Mm. that tells you, again, it's a very sad state of affairs right now
0: and it's not just like animals that can be found only in Australia and nowhere else in the world Indeed. like Wallace mm. I mean in Indonesia forest fires there have also yes. mm. loss of a lot of orangutans which are also endemic to that region mm-hmm. but, well, now if you like what you're hearing so far do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating now back to our conversation with climate scientist Winston Chow from the Singapore Management University So Singapore is no bushfire season but we do suffer from the impacts of rising temperatures. In fact, the weatherman here just announced that the year 2019 has tied with 2016 as the warmest year on record with an annual mean temperature of 28.4 degrees Celsius. So Noor can you share with us what are the causes for high temperatures in Singapore? Is it just climate change?
2: It's a combination of climate change, regional global climate change from enhanced greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, as well as greater urbanisation. So the trend is that we've increased temperatures from just over 25 or 26 degrees all the way until 20 degrees C since the 1960s or 70s. That's what I believe. When you convert whatever rainforest or mangrove coast that we used to have to the sprawling metropolis that is Singapore, the materials that you add on the concrete, the asphalt, uh, not only do they prevent water from evaporating from the surface, they also store more heat during the daytime and they emit it at night. That's when you get the heat island problem. But also there is that influence of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We know that the pattern of change in Singapore is also similar to other parts of Southeast Asia as well.
0: So it's like a double whammy for Singapore?
2: It's a double whammy for Singapore indeed.
0: So, you know, we don't have a bushfire season, we don't have a fire season, but does Singapore have any periods in the year where it experiences particularly warmer temperatures?
2: Yes, it does Right now, we're recording this podcast in January. Next month in February is the driest part of the year, the dry phase of the northeast monsoon. Temperatures are also will peak around February, March, in the sense that we approach the equinox when the sun is directly overhead in the equator. So it's going to be hot, it's going to be dry. We won't have, you no know, knock on wood, the sort of wildfires that we've seen in uh, Sumatra and Kalimantan. But historically, there have been periods where the really dry weather combined with the hot conditions lead to localized fires that occur in Singapore.
0: Yeah, probably we don't have that much forest to burn Also, anyway. (laughs) That's
2: the topic of another podcast, maybe, yes.
0: So, Vincent, you are one of the principal investigators for a nationwide project called Cooling Singapore. I think this would interest our listeners a lot. So, could you just tell us a bit more about what this project is about?
2: The project, as its name very bluntly suggests, is to try and find methods, approaches at various scales to cool Singapore. We try to look at reducing the urban heat island component. We try to also look at reducing the resultant thermal discomfort that arises from a very warm environment at night in urban areas, be it in downtown, in Orchard Road, or in MBFC, or in residential areas dominated by high-rise estates from your HDB and your condos. So we've been doing this research for the past coming to three years. We started in 2017. We've published some online guides in terms of what strategies people can do, stakeholders in terms of what individuals as well as businesses, as well as for planning agencies that will be affected by increased urban warmth. These materials are available online. Just go to CoolingSingapore.sg and you can download all the relevant reports that we have generated over the past three years.
0: So can you give us some examples? I think I read through some of the report recently and some of it includes things like design, right? Adjusting the heights of buildings so wind can flow through easily.
2: Yes, so there are strategies that can work well from a planning perspective in the sense that If you stagger your building heights, you can have a sort of sail effect. You can capture wind speeds from higher up in the boundary layer. So higher up above the surface, capture it down, bring it down to pedestrian level, which helps not only just in terms of enhancing thermal comfort for pedestrians, but also helps in dispersing air pollution, for one thing. There's also suggestions in terms of green spaces. So it's not just your large parks like Bishan, Kio or the central catchment area that will result in cooler environments at the smaller spatial scales, but also street trees or rooftop gardens or green walls and green roofs that also can help, not just in terms of cooling the immediate environment, but reducing the thermal load in terms of the upper floors of buildings. That's another approach, the natural or the nature-based solution for reducing the heat island. Other sorts of measures would include changing infrastructural patterns like how you can be more efficient in air conditioning rather than using individual condenser units. Look towards using district cooling initiatives that are not only efficient in terms of power use so you can save energy for your bills, uh, for your power bills, but also reduce, it has that co-benefit of reducing your consumption of power that in Singapore's case is mostly generated by fossil fuels, by natural gas. So not only do you have the benefit of reducing your immediate temperatures, uh, you can make a dent in uh, your emissions for the larger climate change problem.
0: So what about any tips for individuals?
2: Individuals for making sure that uh, you are thermally comfortable or making sure that you can reduce your heat island signature? Uh,
0: maybe thermally comfortable.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, thermally comfortable. In an individual sense, indoors, just make sure that you find the temperature for your air conditioning that is acceptable. Okay, that's one. If you are an individual, let's say, who actually has a say in your building design, you might want to consider using construction materials that have low carbon emissions. You can choose infrastructure that are efficient in terms of air conditioning use. If you are taking transport, don't use public transport as much as possible. Use electric cars. If you electrify the grid, not only will it reduce noise and potential heat island from less waste heat from your not using internal combustion engines. Again, that's the co-benefit of reducing emissions through more efficient energy use. If you are a landscape architect, you're designing properties, consider using more nature-based solutions, consider using more green spaces that not only can reduce the ambient temperature, but also can make a difference in terms of allowing rainwater to infiltrate through to the ground. In this sense, you reduce the flood risk that is possible when you urbanize great places what happens is that whatever rainfall doesn't infiltrate into the ground, stays as uh, standing water and can be a risk for flood if the rainfall is particularly extreme.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that is important for all of us to remember is that while we can take all these strategies to try to, you know, beat the heat, the ultimate root cause of the problem is global in nature, It's
1: global in nature, yes. So I guess the main thing really is the headline step that we should all aim for and, and take part in is cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Design is good, individual action is great, but it all has to add up to cutting greenhouse gas emissions and quickly.
2: Yes, you need to cut emissions rapidly. You have to expect that one of the conclusions of uh, the IPCC Special Report 1.5 is that uh, rapid transitions in all aspects of human society are needed to keep to that target it really needs to be done sooner rather than later. There is that sense of urgency and there needs to be more ambition from all interested stakeholders, not just individuals, but also business community as well as the governments.
1: So do you think major climate-related events like the Australian fires will literally prompt people to take that sort of action? Or, uh, or do we need a few more disasters?
2: I hope not. It's a question of politics, right? My own take is that if the costs, um, now we're moving back to the wildfire discussion, if the costs from the not only just the wildfires but also the cascading risks that result from that. David was talking about floods that will happen. The consequence of stripping away all your surface vegetation from fires is that more floods will happen. And then on top of that, you've got pollution of your water sources. Mm -hmm. And obviously with all that particulate matter, unfortunately, most of Southeast Australia is experiencing what Southeast Asia experienced in 2015 with the transboundary haze. It's gonna add up. Tourism will be affected. I'm a big tennis fan. I'm very interested to see what will happen in the Australian Open over the next few weeks, whether or not the air quality will lead to issues of play stoppages on top of the warmer temperatures that have been the case so far. Now, if you add up all these costs, will it exceed the $60 billion or so in terms of fossil fuel exports from coal? As we know, Australia is a major exporter of coal. If the Australian government considers that the cost outseeds whatever revenues that are generated from fossil fuel exports, maybe the conversation down under will move beyond just simple you know, lip service towards mitigation to actual political action.
0: I mean, I just want to mm. chime in here and say that if anything, these events should just show us that climate change and dealing with climate change is not just an environmental topic that activists are campaigning for if anything it just shows that how intimately it's linked to human lives and livelihoods and tourism and economy and everything and that taking action is not a matter of choice anymore
2: Indeed as I said rapid unprecedented transitions in all aspects of human society have to occur
1: Yeah it's not a leftist conspiracy (laughs) (laughs) It's a genuine global problem that will affect more and more people basically as time goes by Indeed
0: So, well, thank you, Winston, for joining us on our show today.
2: I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.